0: Hello and welcome to Occupational Perspectives, the podcast. I'm your host, Itumeleng Tzadzi Mosala, and I will be facilitating meaningful conversations with occupational therapists across the globe who are movers and shakers in our profession. We will celebrate their wins, their struggles, as well as challenges as we find out internal and external factors that contributed to the pioneers that they are today, so if the vibes are right sit back relax and join me as i unpack their occupational perspective our next guest is dr frank cronenberg he originates from the netherlands and is a director and co-founder of shades of black works Frank is a chair of the board of directors of Grandmothers Against Poverty and AIDS, a nonprofit organization based in Kailicha, Cape Town. Frank is also the co founder of the Occupational Therapists Without Borders movement, which inspired a number of international groundbreaking publications, which he co edited and co authored in Occupational Therapy Without Borders, Learning from the Spirit of Survivors in 2005. He continued to co-edit and co-author Political Practice of Occupational Therapy in 2008 and later the Occupational Therapies Without Borders, Volume 2, Towards an Ecology of Occupational-Based Practice in 2011. Frank works as an international guest lecturer and consultant at universities in South Africa, North and South America and Europe. He is formally affiliated with the Zaid University in the Netherlands, the University of Cape Town, California State University in Dominguez Hills, and Tor University in the United States. Frank conducted doctoral research in occupational therapy at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. His phonetic case study with embedded narrative inquiry focused on everyday enactments of humanity affirmations in post-1994 apartheid South Africa, advancing a radical understanding of being human as occupation and health. Before coming to South Africa in 2006, Frank traveled extensively and worked in projects and programs that aim to advance the plight of children and adults living with disabilities and at-risk youth in the United States, Nepal, Pakistan, india mexico and guatemala in this episode dr frank Cronenberg takes us through his journey as an occupational therapist starting off with completing a teaching diploma in the netherlands at age 19. not feeling ready to practice as a teacher led him to traveling the world working with street kids in mexico made him realize he was not trained to work with such a population he later discovered occupational therapy which he decided to study at age 31. His undergraduate research coined the term occupational apartheid, which later became a controversial term within the occupational therapy profession to date. Frank takes us through the reality of being a disruptor in occupational therapy and how transformation in our profession may look like when we explore occupational therapy in other languages. He highlights the importance of transformation and occupational therapy and how holding one's truth can be beneficial in redefining old practices. I hope you're excited for Frank to kickstart episode one of season two. I must warn you though, you need to hold on to your seats for this one. So without any further ado, let's get straight into it. Hello Frank, Um, welcome to Occupational Perspectives, the podcast again. Um, After having you the first time, the audio was corrupted and so... We struggled months and months and months to reschedule. So thank you so much for making time again. And yeah, I'm really excited to unpack your journey as an occupational therapist and the pioneer that you are today.
1: Well, thanks to me for having me again. You know, I was wondering, though, um, you said like, well, our first attempt was corrupted. You wonder what that was about, right? Because we couldn't figure out what had gone wrong. You've done so many episodes before this one. Why did it go wrong when we spoke last time? It was very engaged, you know? Um, So, God knows. Let's see this time.
0: (laughs) It was probably one of the longest interviews that I've conducted, actually, because I remember I was like, this is such valuable information. Um, But unfortunately, um, life does what it does sometimes, and you just have to roll with the punches.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, we do.
0: So we do. All right. So before we begin, can you just maybe tell the audience who you are for those for those people who want to claim that they don't know you? Um, can you just tell them who you are and what you do?
1: It's a wide open question, right? You know, because I mean <laughs> that could actually fill the night. <laughs> it
0: really is. and that would
1: still be the brief version. In but, a nutshell,
0: uh, who do you who in a who you say you are you? Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, let's start with. Good old boring with the name, right? Uh, Frank Cronenberg, um, uh, originally from the Netherlands, Mm -hmm. a child of the 60s, the 1960s in the Netherlands. Uh, But since 2005, um, I regard Cape Town, South Africa, uh, my new home. And when I say my new home, it's home to a family that I found and that we founded here in in this country. Never anticipated that uh, that I would call South Africa one day uh, my new home, but that's just how the cookie crumbled. Um, I'm married to, I mean, just to explain that for those who don't know, I'm married to Prof. Elavani Ramugondo, um, who just happens to also be an occupational therapist. Again, yeah. that was not uh, a prerequisite, you know. It was, again, how the cookie crumbled. Um, and when we met... Um, I think it was through the book, uh, Occupational Therapy Without Borders, the first edition. Mm-hmm. She was uh, one of the contributing authors. And, and um, in my undergrad thesis, I had coined Occupational Apartheid in 1999. So in 2004, uh, I got invited to speak on that particular topic at the what was called the Doing Things Differently Conference, uh, organized by Otasa uh, in Cape Town. And it was uh, organized a week after the World Federation of Occupational Therapists council meeting Mm -hmm. had also taken place in in Cape Town. So I think they strategically did that so that many of the international uh, delegates who had arrived at Cape Town could also attend that doing things differently conference. So that's where actually uh, our story started um, when some colleagues, some of them still students uh, were recognizing that there was something going on between the two of us. (laughs) which we which we denied we, we denied it's so like well what are you talking about but after two weeks a two-week stay in cape town we actually did have to at least talk about it you know so at the promenade in seapoint you know the place right yeah we just the day before i flew back uh, to the netherlands we says well what's going on here you know both of us were no longer what i call spring chickens you know? <laughs> uh, uh, i was already rather advanced in age and Ella was about six years younger still is um and um yeah i think we we yeah we we just spelled it out and said that it seemed that whenever the two of us were together during those two weeks that uh, we were bringing like the better parts or the best parts out in each other and not being that young anymore and having had other relationships before i think we yeah, I mean, you know, you're mature. You know, you know better what works for you and what doesn't. Mm. And one doesn't look for a perfect picture, you know, because they don't exist, you know. Um, and we realized that, not just as persons, but also um, we saw something, a potential in occupational therapy, that up to that point we felt was not connected with, you know, we did wasn't fleshed out fully, and we thought that maybe uh, by being together we could together actually explore that and, and and bring that about and i think that um yeah that has happened things went very fast um when this was 2004 that conference and in 2005 um, i mean Ella came to europe we, we presented a courts course together in eastern europe in romania um, and then and the book ot without borders the first edition was published and illa was present, you know, at the launch. Mm-hmm. And then I came to South Africa pretty soon after that. I met her family up in Venda. And um, I think then things went very, very fast. You
0: know? Really? Um, Wasn't that fast?
1: Engaged for seven days. And uh, and then Lobola was negotiated seven Are days later. serious? Yebo, yebo, yeah, 2005. Oh, 2006. wow. Uh, the formal wedding, civic marriage, and then the the formal wedding.
0: When they say, "When you know, you know," it's true, ne?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I can't can't speak for anybody else, but uh, in our case, we uh, we knew that that was it.
0: Oh wow! And and do you realize yeah. that every time you tell your story, I I blush every single time. Well, I'm I'm actually very now interested in you know what brings you to this point. So maybe if you can take us through your childhood, your upbringing, you know mm-hmm. where 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 are you from, what were you like as a child growing up and you know if you can speak up a, a bit about your primary school, your high school, so just give us a background of sure. what contributed to what we are seeing today.
1: Sure. so so the priests of Africa years in a way, right? all the way back to the beginning. Yeah. So yeah. So 60s, uh, the south of the Netherlands, close to the German and Belgian border in a little town, I mean, about 35,000 people uh, when I left. And I'm uh, the oldest child of four, um, two younger brothers and a sister I have uh, in a baker family. Yeah. Yeah. And and my both my mom and dad also came from bakers. Oh.
0: Yeah? And
1: my, my dad, even three generations of baker family. So we are actually the first generation. Who stopped continuing the tradition? We actually broke the tradition. But, but growing up in a in a bakery milieu um, where m- many of our customers happened to be people who were uh, institutionalized in mental in, in, in big mental health hospitals,
0: mm. you know,
1: and institutions. In our our hometown, Venray, was known in the Netherlands to be a place that hosts many of those institutions. Mm. So, as a kid, I grew up. With my brothers and sister uh, to drop off bread daily, you know, within those institutions. And in those institutions, I remember as a kid, there were like three types of populations, if I think back of it. It was those people who were institutionalized, so with mental health uh, issues. Then there were Catholic fathers and nuns who were looking after the everyday needs Mm -hmm. of those people. And then you had the white coats. You know, I say white coats intentionally yeah, because those were the doctors, the nurses and the, and, and the therapists. And what all three of them had in common is they ate our bread. And because they ate our bread, we had bread on our table, if you see what I mean.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Yeah. But so bread, metaphorically speaking, as well, um, is almost like the great equalizer in a sense, you know, nobody can do without it, nobody can do without food, right, you know, everybody has a right to eat, I mean, if you want to put it that way, but I picked up as a kid that the three uh, populations in those institutions did not uh, interact with each other in in an equal manner. The white coats treated the brothers and and sisters, you know, the nuns and the fathers, Mm -hmm. and the people with mental health issues, as if they were lesser. Sure. You know so or otherwise like well they treated them as if they were superior mm, you know? mm. I didn't have that language back then as a kid to, to to kind of make sense of that but there was a hunch that something ain't right here right so so park that as we as the story continues. Yes. Beautiful childhood fantastic childhood really you know in a in a town where it was possible to just hop on a bicycle and just go anywhere and and, and play and do your thing you know sports music uh, uh, good schools Uh, um, a home where we were loved, you know, uh, pretty much like ideal circumstances. I would wish anybody to grow up in this world as we were allowed to grow up. But there were shadow sides and those shadow sides linked to realizing that a person's life doesn't start or the story of a person's life doesn't start with being born. You know, my parents were part of the generation that survived the Second World War.
0: Mm.
1: you know we were the first generation that was born you know out of that generation and their lives were rough and tough you know they've lost family members my, la- my mom lost her mom who was pregnant of twins uh, at the time and her little brother when there was a bombing um, happening they all went into the cellars you know to just to 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 hide mm. and one bomb actually penetrated through a couple of floors of the house and landed right next to where my mom's mom was uh, was seated And the pressure, the bomb didn't explode, but the pressure of the bomb landing instantly killed my mom's mom and the two twins, of course, that were uh, still in her and and her little brother. And um, my dad, a similar experience, even though they didn't know each other at that point yet, but he didn't live too far away from that place. um, Grenades were thrown into the bakery there and he was still helping a customer, you know, and he didn't make it into the cellar in time. And they had, they thought that he had, had died in that situation. So he ended up in a morgue in, the, in a hospital and um, uh, a cleaner picked up that there was a body moving and uh, actually sent the doctors in to go, to go check, says, which body was it? Well, this one here. And they found out actually that that person was still alive. And that happened to be my dad's dad. So they, they, yeah, he was never dead, but he, they, they, they fixed him up, so to speak. And, um, and he lived uh, for another 15 years or so. So, and they literally had to rebuild the villages, uh, the towns and the houses and the bakeries that they, that they lived in, you know, from scratch. So a very tough life. And, and the, the motivation for how they raised us as four kids always was driven by those traumas of the Second World War. They wanted to create a world and build a world together in which hopefully we, and future generations would not have to go through the horrors that they went through. Oh. So what today is, is known in, um, um, in the literature as intergenerational trauma,
0: Mm-mm.
1: you know, I think back then PTSD didn't exist as a, as a diagnostic uh, term, right? But I think that generation of our parents actually was traumatized to the bone yeah but uh, nobody actually paid attention to them they pretty much had to just not talk I mean that was one golden rule you don't talk about this stuff and if you are troubled by something just work it off just work hard I think that was the these were the only tools that they had available and I think that in how we were raised and particularly when there are situations of tension like conflict yeah. my parents I think struggled uh, with navigating and negotiating conflicts You know, because this not talking about it and just work hard um, was almost like the only toolbox that they had available. Mm -hmm. So I think that with all the love and everything that we've received from them, there's certain things that we've had to figure out for ourselves outside that how we were raised. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to go out in the world almost like and figure these things out for yourself. So um, when I was 16, super young still, but um, I finished high school at 16. And then you have to decide what you're going to go and study. And I was I was still a kid, you know, and um, and sports was most important to, to me. So my parents decided for me what to study. They said, wherever you go, you have kids that that like to be around you. You know, wherever you go, kids run after you. So teacher, become a teacher. So you kind of go like, okay, you know, you sign up, you go for the for teacher training college, which was three years at that time. And with nineteen, I graduated. And when um, on the day of the um, of the ceremony, you know, and you get your diploma, right? You sign it, you get your diploma. And in the evening, um, I looked at the diploma after a party, and laughed out loud. And my parents picked up on it and says, "Why are you laughing?" I says, "I mean, that's a diploma you're looking at." It says, "Yeah," I said, "Tell me, is this true now that this piece of paper here now uh, 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 is proof that Dutch society trusts me to go and prepare <laughs> little human beings for that big world out there?" And they kind of went like, yeah, <laughs> you know, go get a job and uh, start working. I says, no, I said, this is ridiculous. You know, I said, I'm, I'm only 19 years young. Mm. I'm not ready to go. And I mean, that big world out there, there's so much that I still want to learn about. I'm, I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not ready to be a teacher yet. And then I asked myself the question, how many teachers names up to 19 can I still remember? And I came up with three names. And I thought, like, well, why those three and not anybody else? Mm-hmm. And it was because those three had one thing in common. And that is before they started to teach, they had traveled and all worked abroad for a couple of years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I remember, I don't even remember what subjects they taught, but I do remember how they taught. It was always through storytelling. Mm-hmm. They always like any issue, any subject, they just told the story about something that they had witnessed, something that they had experienced. So I said, that's my cue. I'm happy to become a teacher, you know, but I'm not ready And now going back to those white coats, you know, uh, and during those childhood years also, it was a Catholic South, right? Catholic town. We had missionaries that would come and visit our school every year and show slides of projects that they were doing in the global South,
0: Mm. South
1: America, Africa, Asia. And it was always either health related or education or community developments, always something in those areas. And I think that planted a seed in my head that not everybody in the world looks like us, talks like us, eats the kind of food that we eat. And, you know, over the years, there was this pattern that it seems to be that people who do not look, talk and eat like us need our help. Because those missionaries went there to kind of do this development stuff. Right. And I asked myself the question, I want to find out what is the story or what are the stories behind that um, realization as a child. Mm. And I said, if I have answers to that question, I think from having gone out in the world to to check that out, I said, then I'm probably ready to be a teacher. Mm. And that got out of hand. That took 10 years.
0: (laughs) Wow.
1: I left for 10 years. And um, working in a kibbutz in in Israel and Palestine, working in the the United States in in summer camps and traveling across to, to Mexico for the first time then coming home and then everybody thought like okay you've lost your wild hair now you know you've been out there a bit now get started and start start a job and start a family he says no no this was just a (laughs) warm-up i needed to know whether i could be (laughs) away from home
0: Started.
1: (laughs) yep and um so uh, ultimately the trans-siberia express that train you know still soviet union times to china mongolia china And I worked for about a year in uh, all kinds of development projects in Nepal, Pakistan, and India.
0: Mm.
1: We're talking 1988 now, in that that period. And uh, coming back from that, um, I went to go and work in inner cities, schools for special education, in Utrecht and in Amsterdam for a bit. But very quickly, I somehow, like, I was too restless by what I had been exposed to and what I had learned So I left the country again, went to New York to work for an organization called New York Service for the Handicapped. And they were running summer camps and respite programs on the New Jersey shore. And I've been working there for about five to six years, you know, off and on. Mm -hmm. And on the side, you know, and during free time, I worked in uh, New York, Manhattan-based youth programs, um, kids in crisis situations. Um, and that's when the idea was born to go and work with street so called street kids mm-hmm. in uh, Mexico. Yeah, took a Greyhound bus down to the Mexican border, Mexican border, Grey, Mexican Greyhound bus down to Mexico City, 1992. And then uh, in the yellow pages, look for organizations that work with street kids and worked there for a year as a volunteer because I had saved up money in New York to kind of do this work. And after that year, without going into detail of everything that I experienced there, I said like, I need to go back to school. You know, My my formal education didn't equip me well enough to go and work with this um, population with very complex uh, uh, needs. And so I said, I got to go back to school. But then the question comes, but what do you want to study? Because I was literally interested in freaking everything, social sciences, uh, medical uh, sciences, journalism, the arts, languages, Um, so whenever push came to shove, I could make up my mind, you know, if I go for, let's say, neurology, then the social aspects are left out, if I go for university studies, it's not going to be practical, so I kept going around in circles, and I was living in New York at that time, and that's when a dear friend of mine, who happened to be an occupational therapist, told me, you know what, you should study, I said, well, if I would know, I wouldn't (laughs) be confused, you know, she says, no, she said, occupational therapy, and I translated it into Dutch, which would mean like, yeah, keeping people occupied, mm-hmm. you know, keeping people busy. That's my, my translation of it. And she said something very important. She says, yeah, 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 yeah. She said, I know, you know, but you know what? The name of the profession, just forget it for a second, because we always get in trouble when we say what, who we are, what we do. Mm-hmm. And then we try to explain it and people get look all confused. She says, just park the name like you can park a car. And since you're in the States already, go to the Jane Addams Museum in Chicago and read up and, and, and learn about the origins of the profession in the United States. And that's what I did. And that's where I learned that story that you're probably also familiar with an architect and a nurse and a social worker and a psychiatrist, you know, all working with European immigrants that were coming over to the US looking for a better life. And um, at some point, I imagine they sat around the table, they had their cup of tea, and uh, then they realized that none of them were specifically prepared to work with these complex social issues. Mm. And they agreed that maybe a new field should come about, which didn't have a name yet. And the premise, the foundational principle for that field, they agreed on. They said, well, what we're looking at, what we face every day here is very, very complex. So whatever this new field is going to be named, it is for people who are not afraid of engaging with complexity. Mm. And that particular interpretation of those origins makes it clear to me why this friend of mine says you should study occupational therapy. Because I realized that given that I'm interested in everything, but I don't want to choose one thing, occupational therapy, what became OT, is maybe the only profession that allows a person to never ever have to make up their mind what to study.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, which is not to be confused with knowing about everything, but it is an appreciation of complexity requiring multiple perspectives, multiple angles from where one can look at a situation. So I may, through training or life experience, may look at an issue from a couple of angles. So, and others who we work with may have their angles. And when you get stuck, most often, it is because certain angles of looking into, into the situation are not represented around the table. It just means looking for those positions so that we have more puzzle pieces that we can kind of start pacing together to get a, get the picture, you know, as to what is it going on here and what might be necessary. So that's, um, that's how I ended up um, studying OT later in life as a so-called mature student, you know, at 31 and coming out with 35.
0: Oh, wow, and and that's actually amazing that you entered the profession quite late, but the impact you've made in the profession is actually quite profound, which actually makes me wonder if the age factor had anything to do with it, because at the time you had so much experience and you've been exposed to different populations. And you sort of had an idea of what the needs were out there. That you mm. came in, you hit the nail on the head, and you just, you know, created a reputation around your name, really. Within um,
1: the- yeah. So you mentioned age, right? But age had something to do with it.
0: Yes, because a lot of us come into the profession not really knowing what it's about, trying to yep. figure it out. And mm. then by the time you sort of get it, it's already later on in your career, you know? Yeah. Whereas with you, you sort of traveled the world, you had that exposure, you kind of knew what the different needs were, you knew how to sort of approach this profession. So I'm saying, I wonder if age had anything to do with with that, um, yeah, with yeah. you just yeah. making a Obviously name. Obviously
1: not, um, not not my biological age, not in that sense, right? But it's what's, the, before entering the study, what my life had already um, been about, you know? So I think it is true that I entered with clarity about what I was looking for, what OT was to be, and who I was going to work with. Yes. But being that I went back to the Netherlands to study it, and it was an undergrad program because there were were no masters yet in Europe at that time, um, very quickly found out actually, nobody's going to teach you how to work with so-called street kids.
0: Mm.
1: and definitely not in another country so actually there I got into well I don't want to call it an existential crisis but a professional crisis definitely that after three years of very interesting education but very strongly clinical and institution-based you know although my entry into and I and everybody knew that you know this one is coming here to learn how to become an OT to go back to Mexico and work with so-called street kids Right? So, But nobody spoke about it. So until the fourth year, when we in the Netherlands, you have to do your undergrad thesis.
0: Mm. So that
1: was actually the last opportunity for me to connect the dots between why I had entered. You know? And also the philosophy of occupational therapy that you know, doing stuff that is meaningful and, that, and purposeful. Mm. Meaning and purpose for me in studying OT, becoming an OT was directly linked to working with a particular population. Sure. But given that that narrative was never acknowledged nor supported, Mm-hmm. I had to just pretty much like come up with myself and and interestingly um, my research proposal my thesis proposal was originally rejected because first of all one of the my, my educators back then at the program said like well OTs don't work with street kids you're in the wrong program you should be on social work or social psychology or something like that this is no that's not that's definitely not a reason to reject a, a thesis and I said I want to do it in English rather than in Dutch because Mm. the literature that I have to tap into will be in Spanish and in Portuguese and in English you know so if if I have to translate everything only so that a supervisor or an examiner can read it in Dutch I said that's just too much work so that became an obstacle Um, but ultimately there was one teacher uh, there who said like well I don't agree with my colleagues about the reasons why we should reject this proposal. Mm -hmm. But we have to acknowledge that there's nobody here who can actually supervise content wise, what it is that you're looking for. But she says, I will be available to do the process of doing research and making sure that you follow all the steps, but you will need to find your content supervision elsewhere in the world. And internet had just come to our school at that time. And I, yeah, I found people like Sandra Gallego in Brazil that's how we met, uh, it was through the, through the research. So a number of people who later became part of OT Without Borders, oh, you know? Wow. So ultimately that research did happen and it, uh, it also received the best academic achievement award at that university at the time. Um, and a lot of media attention and 5,000 guilders uh, like a serious funds. And because there was recognition that OT was presented in a way that was very different from how people, what people were used to, mm. you know? And it says, oh, this is an opportunity for us to kind of show that OT is so much more than adapted uh, forks and knives and and, and wheelchairs, right? Yeah. So, so, and in that thesis, but also occupational apartheid was coined as a term. Mm. You know? And the reason it was coined was because the language and the concepts that were available at the time, all pointed to the problem of so-called street kids to reside within those youngsters. Mm. And I said, it's just, I've worked with them as a volunteer. I said, it's the issue, they're not born like that. It's 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 historical, social, economic yeah. conditions that produce the phenomenon of, of, of street kids. You know, it's, it's not their choice. So it's actually systemic ills that give birth to this social uh, problem so if we're trying to fix it by making the youth the problem we're, we're going about it the wrong way it's almost like blaming the victims you know yeah. so so um and wilcock at that time in the same same year presented reflections on doing being and becoming mm. at the montreal 1998 world congress uh keynotes you know? mm. and Somebody had recorded it on a cassette. So I don't know if you still know what a cassette is. You know? Yes, yes. Are you still, okay. So and brought that from Montreal and I transcribed it. the first thing I ever transcribed in my life. Um, and almost like I can dream that talk because in that talk, she coined new language, occupational alienation, occupational imbalance, occupational justice, mm-hmm. occupational deprivation. So those new terms came about. And I thought like, hey, is it so it, you don't have to be stuck with the terms that exist you can actually come up with new language yeah. so if Anne Wilcock can do it then I guess anybody else can too so occupational apartheid was encouraged by in a way by Wilcock. say like okay this is what I want to name it apartheid why well it's, uh, it's because it's political mm. but it's also people pay attention you know mm. I was thinking back then right as a young young person still then but um people pay attention to it, you know, and and the phenomenon of street kids is not on our radar within occupational therapy. So maybe by associating this language with that particular group, people start paying attention and we start to generate knowledge and practices with populations such as as this one. And um, little could I have known back then that that term actually became critical in bringing about OT Without Borders and meeting Ilewani.
0: Okay, so Frank, I'm interested in what you mentioned, Elia. You said that when you were growing up, you saw that a lot of the missionaries were helping people from the global south, um, but those people did not look like you. And you were wondering, what is it about the global south um, that that, you know, I don't want to say seeks attention from the global north and west. Um, yeah, so fine. So you went on this quest to sort of find out what is it about the global south. What would you say are the two maybe key things that you found out?
1: Um, two key things. Um, well, before before making it two things, um, maybe I can just think out loud and uh, of, of about those. Yeah, ten. It was a. Um, a period of 10 years 11 years um, remember the question what the question was that added to you know that prompted me to leave you know it was first of all like well in order to become a good teacher Mm -hmm. I need to know about the world not just from what I've been reading in books or was made to read in books but also from what I would have witnessed firsthand or experienced firsthand right that's why I remember those three teachers names And then add to that to give it actually also a little bit more depth, you know, or in OT terms, meaning and purpose. Mm. I asked the question, what is the story or rather the stories, which I anticipated, not just that wouldn't be a single story, but Mm. stories behind the perception that I had as a kid, that those who do not look, talk and eat the way we do in the Netherlands
0: Mm.
1: need our help. Mm. given that all the projects that these projects were about were always about, yeah, support. Yeah, you know, Like having people there um, help them to get their lives on track, you know, mm. whatever, right? Yeah. And so I didn't say that that was necessary, but this was just my perception mm. that it seems to be, you know? So having gone out there and witnessed an experience and participated firsthand in some of those projects as well, Um I've learned about firsthand about like how perversely unequal our world is uh, constituted,
0: Mm. you know,
1: and constituted in terms of, again, looking through through an OTE lens, you know, through an occupational lens. It is like, well, men decide, you know, or shape the world as unequal,
0: Mm. you know,
1: so those perverse inequalities are man-made. That's what I witnessed. And what I learned is that man made, man here is not a neutral term. Man is people that look like me to put it in black and white terms, you know? So Europeans, Western Europeans. Sure. Besides besides witnessing and and, and speaking with people. And and, um, I've also been doing a lot of reading, obviously. So you start to get a deeper appreciation for history
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: histories. You know, the history that we were taught and that I was to teach as a school teacher to kids in the Netherlands, for example, about the relationship, the historical relationship between South Africa and the Netherlands. Mm. I mean, I was teaching it as like, well, these were our golden years. We were like number one in the world, this little country in, the, in, in, in Europe. We were on top of the world. We were like a, a superpower. You know, mm-hmm. economically, the Dutch East India Company, you know the story, right? Jan van Riebeek, all yeah. of that was like celebratory contents in our history. Sure. But then you come here and say like, well, hang on. <laughs> that's, that's a very one-sided story, but there's, what, what, what are the other stories behind it? And that, of course, that's the story then where uh, colonialism and slavery and racism, you know, mm-hmm. the origins of it, they go back almost as long, some 500 years, arguably, where Western Europeans, particularly, Elite Western Europeans, I must say as well, um, went out not to just go and, and discover, but also conquer other parts of the world. Mm. Which parts in particular? All those countries in the global south. So, those and, and those missionaries played a big part in actually establishing the unequal conditions. You know, mm. when they encountered, let's say, the so called Indians, right? When Columbus landed on the island of Hispaniola in 1492, you know, he had Jesuit, Catholic Jesuit priests accompany him. And they bumped into people there which they had not expected. And because they thought they had arrived in India through a shortcut, they called the indigenous populations there Indians until today. Mm -hmm. That's where the name comes from. But another question they had to ask is, oh, look at that, you know, look at this, there's people there. And then they asked, Columbus apparently asked the question, are they human too? And then the jesuit priest corrected him he says no that's the wrong question we must ask the question do they have a soul and that then turned into the so-called 60-year debate so after 1492 up to what is that uh, uh, 1785 i think the queen not the queen the king of spain of um uh, yeah of castilla was tired of that debate of to say like, well, do indigenous people have a soul or not? So we asked two Jesuit priests, Bartolome de las Casas and Gené de Sepúlveda to kind of battle it out, to debate it out in front of him. And Bartolome de las Casas won. Gené de Sepúlveda said, they don't have a soul. They're like animals and we can, we can use them as slaves. We can do anything to them. And Bartolome de las Casas says, no, they are human, but they do have a soul but they worship the wrong God. So they have to become Christians. That was the origins of the racism that we know today. It's called, referred to in the literature as religious racism, which later turned into biological racism. And now we have all kinds of racism terms, Mm. but the origins of it is, is there. So Europeans deciding that those people do have a soul, but they worship the wrong religion. What did they do next? They came to africa because what what did the people in, in the americas want they started plantations sugar cotton you know you you name it so they went to west africa and a three centuries long atlantic captive trade was sustained by various european countries right where millions of black bodies from the african continent were kidnapped basically mm-hmm and taken over to the other side. They didn't ask the question in Africa do they have a soul? Because the intent was that they needed labor. So they just went for the shortcut and says no they don't have a soul so that we can turn them into property we can do with them whatever we want. So so if you think of black lives matter in 2013 and then in 2020 exploding globally mm. there's a history behind it that goes back at least 500 years and it originates in western Africa and western Europe. So going back to the times when I grew up and learned about missionaries who go and do all these development projects in the global South, you start thinking like, ah, oh, okay, I get it you know
0: yeah, That,
1: that inequality it. or that development, underdevelopment, developing, developed uh, um, paradigm is one that comes from Western Europe and that basically is perpetuated until the present day. It's mm-hmm. all more subtle today than back then. But um, um, so if you say like, well, what are the two things that you learned is that um, there's that we have to acknowledge that we our crimes, our collective crimes, because we've committed crimes and uh, with impunity. You know? So the fact that Western Europe is so much more developed and rich in the eyes of many um, has something to do with the, with the history behind it. A history of not just uh, uh, discoveries, but also conquests and colonization, mm. and and pretty much like stripping uh, many countries and continents in the global south from their riches uh, until the present day. You know, so the whole idea of people being superior there because they are smarter. <laughs> no, <laughs> they've just they've just committed uh, crimes that actually for which we have no language to, 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 to oh, capture wow. it.
0: <laughs> you just, you just made my mind go. Poof. It literally just exploded. I know with the term occupational apartheid that not, not everyone was welcoming off of this term that oh. you coined. Can True. you just maybe, um yeah, tell us about it. You you've already alluded to how it came about, but how oh. did it settle with, the population, the, the occupational therapy population? Well,
1: um, yeah, you know you know the origins of, of the term. So, so my intention, the reason why I coined it, um, I explained that already. Um, I did not have South Africa as a country and the history of apartheid in South Africa mm-hmm. uh, foremost in my mind. I just only knew that the term apartheid is explicitly political, which is something that I wish to, to communicate And I would also know that people pay attention, you know? This was my, I mean, I was still a student, right? Don't forget, I was older, but in the profession, I was still a student. Yeah. Um, So in South Africa, um, colleagues who had invited me to go and speak on this term at that same conference, also uh, one-on-one communicated to me that um, they would never ever use these two terms in their mouth with students. Because they said, Although they said, we know that this was not your intent, but you must know that for me, what you have done is to bring that which I love the most and which my life has largely defined my life and that is occupation. And you married that to probably what is the ugliest part of, my, you know, of the history of the country that I'm, that I'm from, apartheid. You know, I, in 1994, we put a, like a full stop behind it. You know, like that's the past. We now must look toward the future. So, and you're bringing this like smack back in. And then also in a profession that I love, and it's just, I just, I just can't do it. That's what was communicated to me. Other, another colleague, um, South African colleague, not directly to me, but indicated to somebody else and says, well, um, I don't have so much a problem with the term, but I have a problem with the fact that I coined it. A white Dutch male, oh, wow. uh, Verwoerd, uh, Strijdom, Malan—the architects of apartheid—you know they have Dutch ancestry, right?
0: Mm. So,
1: I mean, for Dutch people to have come up with the original term and the horrors that are associated with it, and now within occupational therapy, we've got another white Dutch male <laughs> who introduces it and it says, "Well, so let's say if if you or Ilelani or or somebody else." Uh, would have coined it and they would have had less of a problem with it but in this case i shouldn't have been the one yeah and i when i look back now um back then i i probably would have protested mm. but now I, I say that you've got a point Yeah. You know it, it's it's similar to white ot's in south africa or anywhere else in the world um have to think very hard before they can comfortably and legitimately say that they want to uh, generate decolonial occupational therapy mm-hmm. you know doesn't mean and I, I, I wouldn't be like a purist and say like well a white person can never think decolonially you know or should never even be part of of, of bringing a decolonial praxis about i i'm I wouldn't, I wouldn't join that camp some people may be that strong about it i don't i don't agree with that you know it would be the same as saying that being anti-racist you know or to fight racism Is only the job of people who experience racism. Mm. I would say, like, no, racism is something that was introduced, as I explained earlier, you know, although it was also very, very quick, right? I mean, I left a lot of nuance out, but I think racism um, in the world today has a particular origin and has a particular complexion, you know, the ones who came up with it Mm. and who still benefit from it. Yeah. So I think therefore that that complexion needs to take responsibility in doing something about it mm. you know, this is not work that is to be done by those who experience it yeah you know? but i think we must just um we must just not speak on behalf of those who experience it yeah you know, we need to take a back seat take a back seat and and and, and do much more listening and give up decision making power mm. in in the structures of our profession, whether it's in within the education institutions or or the uh, the associations, World Federation of Occupational Therapists, national level, mm. um, get get out. <laughs> you know, you step back. It doesn't mean that there's no role for you to play anymore. But um, I think just having uh, the optics of diversity in the room and around the table, that's not a guarantee for leveling.
0: Oh, my um, gosh.
1: The, the, the playing field.
0: You know, it's it's like at work um, when we have these transformation committees and you know mm-hmm. who's often recruited on those transformation people. Um, yeah. Yeah. People who who don't need to be transformed, right? And the ones who right. actually need the transformation are nowhere to be found. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I do agree with you. Um, yeah, unfortunately, we still have a
1: quite a long way to go unfortunately um but yeah but it's you know this 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 long way to go um if life is to continue, that's a long way to go too right Mm. so so i i i struggle with with thinking in because it's a very western way of thinking of time it's a very western conception of time when we frame it in like well we still have a long way to go um it, it also it also can take take hope out of the picture as well. Like oh, yes. you know, like it's something yes. in the future, something that will happen but,
0: in the future. Oh my God. Yeah,
1: that's like time is linear, right? That's a west. That's a Western conception, and mm-hmm. um, it may serve in certain discourses or for certain uh, uh, areas of of life and living, but there exists a uh, a diversity, a plurality of of um, cosmovisions, also of how one can uh, appreciate time. Mm. You know, time is linear. Time is circular.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: if you were to adopt those other ones, more indigenous uh, uh, perceptions of time, all of a sudden you, <laughs> just, I mean, you're. It's like you see different universes. <laughs>
0: mm. You know,
1: you're you're not bogged down by time, but time actually is uh, is is more kind <laughs> to you and say like, well, no, let's focus on the here and now, living in the here mm. and now, you know, and always not always rush after some fake ideal in the future that you need to achieve and by which you also measure the value of your life and and your personhood Mm -hmm. you know by whether you achieve these or don't achieve these you know failure you know winners and losers I mean mm, no why there are other ways of going about living and um, they don't have to be reinvented you know there's still people around who know how to do that they just happen to not be the ones that uh, fill our educational books, mm. <laughs> our curricula. Sure.
0: Yeah,
1: and um, yeah, and languages. I mean, think about language. We're speaking in English right now. Eh? English is not my mother. Is not my mother.
0: Neither yeah. is it mine.
1: <laughs> no, no. You know why are we talking English here, right? Um, well, we could be. I guess you could. Sp- you speak Afrikaans. I take it.
0: No, you I don't. Speak- okay. Well, no. I speak Pedi no. as my home okay. language. Okay, yeah. but,
1: but take that for example, right? In the country in which we live and work, South Africa, 11 formal official languages, mm. right? But this profession of ours uh, is dominantly still taught and researched and theorized in English and second Afrikaans, yeah. know, oh. but, but mainly English, probably English is definitely dominant.
0: Mm.
1: And, and, then we, and then we wonder globally, why OT or the idea of OD, OT is still not fully tapped into the potential. We always say like there's yeah. so much more. I think um, the English language has had over 100 years <laughs> to kind of lead us into tapping into the professional. Let the next 100 years actually give, give pass, pass on the baton to other language groups mm. and say like, well, how if we were to imagine and experience and think and theorize the idea of occupational therapy in other home languages. Other
0: languages,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think that, I think so that is definitely the future. That's the future.
0: There's so much to be unpacked in other languages. Yeah. So so much yeah. to be unpacked. Yeah. I mean, sure. Anyway, um, I I know we can <laughs> carry on forever. <laughs> Let me ask you, Frank. Has it ever? bothered you that occupational therapy was seen as like a feminine profession or, or is it something that you maybe experienced or maybe that i've experienced only in south africa or is it different in the global north or west
1: so devotee in 2020 um, um, a project or a report uh which was conducted amongst the at that time i think 89 countries and now they're a little bit over 100 countries and whatever data that were made available to the WFOT to process, I think they came up with that we are rapidly approaching 600,000 registered occupational therapists worldwide. Mm. 600,000, but so, so distributed between a little over hundred countries, yeah. Uh, but four countries really take the bulk of those 600,000, then is the US obviously, right? Mm. Second is Japan, third is Germany, and fourth is the UK. Mm. And then all the other countries kind of like take up what um, uh, is left. And 89% is the average of like female of those 600,000, 89% is females, 11% is males. Mm. And what I've seen is it fluctuates, fluctuates in some countries where in some countries it's only 5% males and 95% females, you know, so it fluctuates a little bit, but, but yes, the bulk, the majority, the large majority continues to be female, you know, and now we're only, they only research to the binaries, right. Males yeah. and females. So they didn't consider saying like, well, any OTs out there that actually identify differently. Mm. Right? or self-identify differently those categories were not considered that may change in the future it may not uh, some countries actually probably would not allow for that and and other countries um, God knows you know we'll, we'll we'll see what happens there but the question that you asked is like well whether I was uh, troubled by that
0: yeah were you ever like um, did it ever bother you that this is a predominantly feminine career um no I don't I don't I don't think um
1: I don't think bothered, uh, but um, if you take, for example, of our Borders, right? The books that, uh, mm-hmm. that were generated, it probably is not a coincidence that it was a couple of boys, a couple <laughs> of guys who came together and actually uh, started this and sustained this. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Not that the contributors, the contributors, obviously, the majority is female, but the initiative was taken by, by male OTs. And um, I think it probably would be better for the profession to also be more, let's say, genders diverse. Mm.
0: Um,
1: because there's just a, a, a better mix uh, of energy in the room, and also in classes, if you just have, yeah, if you have that, that diversity present as well. Yeah. Because I think particularly in terms of like, well, the political realm, you know, the going out, so the the debating and the discussing and then being out there, um, Mm. um, there's a tendency to regard critiquing things or being critical as taking that personal,
0: Mm.
1: rather than critiquing and being critical actually to just strengthen our resolve, our discourse resolve. You know so so if we want to go out there we're very quick to within amongst ourselves to say like oh well, yeah transformation through occupation you know and social transformation through occupation I mean we, we come together we, we are very comfortable to use this big language amongst ourselves yeah but if that language uh, were to be used um, with with peers who are well trained in social discourse social sciences we don't stand a chance. You know, yeah, they, they would they would probably laugh at us and, and not take us very serious because I think we need to beef up our um our capacity to yeah st- stand our ground out there, you know, and it takes work. Yeah, it yeah. takes work. So I, I do think I'm not I'm not being essential, I'm not trying to be essentialist here saying that males bring this and females can't. Obviously, that's that's too simplistic. Mm. But I think a bit of a balance a better balance than what we currently have, I think would benefit the would be
0: beneficial.
1: our growth yeah, and yeah. our presence in the world, yeah. All
0: right, um, I'm going to ask you this one last question, but then I'm going to go into my favorite part of the podcast, which is the quick fire questions where you have to answer as quickly as you can. But the last right. question I have for you is, is there any negative experience um, that you've sort of had in your career or any low light, or any um, disappointment that you've had in your career, but at the same time has also shaped your career.
1: I'm glad this is not one of the five questions where you have to. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: well, it's
1: not. Um, this is not a term that I've um, given myself, but colleagues in different parts of the world who've, yeah, who, yeah, who know me for a while and who I've worked with. Um, have characterized me as a bit of a disruptor. Mm. You know, they said you're 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 a disruptor, and um, and I said and I would ask. I said, well, I said, why 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 you say that? So well, because we know you two. I mean, first first of all, to speak your mind, you speak your mind. We know what you're thinking. We know what you feel. Which later actually landed me an African name, Isikosa name that yeah. was given to me, uh, Nyaniso. Mm -hmm. which means the one who speaks his mind from the heart, right? Also based on three years of working with a particular group of people who then gave me that name, because it says over those three years, we have consistently experienced you as such, and therefore we felt we need to give you this name, right? So there's a consistency. This was people locally in South Africa, and those other colleagues are from South America, from North America, from Europe, and they also said like, well, yeah, disruptor, you know, like being honest. and and disrupting and so this question that you ask right now is like well a negative or a difficult experience and then also appreciating that experience for its shaping Mm. I think these these two are coming together because in the courses that I uh, put together and that I teach also in South Africa um, I always invite participants to kind of come up with like to say, to, to pick three key words that captured their intentionalities. So within a course, you know, when you enter a course, it says, what are the three intentionalities with which you are present or will be present in this course, right? Because when you have, just like with, I went to go and studied at age 31, paying for the whole study myself, mm. occupational therapy, because my intention was clear. Mm. I ultimately wanted to go and work with a population such as street kids, right? And gangs. So that was back then uh, after finishing the PhD in 2018 and and actually the post PhD thinking about the PhD, almost like rediscovering it all anew. I, for a couple of years now, I've been using three terms to actually capture my intentionalities with occupational therapy. Mm. And probably beyond my my personhood, you know, being in the world. It's three terms interrelated, of course, and I think they speak to your question, and that is everything that I do, you know, is driven is guided by disrupting, mm. regenerating,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: theorizing those disruptions and regenerations. Sure. Right. So disrupting means actually. Yeah, almost there's like some rebelling happening in there, right? It's pretty much like challenging, yeah, the status quo, the rules, you know, the way things are supposed to be, yeah. Right, and of course you're not gonna. Uh, some people may welcome it, but most don't. Yeah, definitely the, not the ones in charge of institutions. So the experiences that you can then expect is that uh, yeah, you're gonna. <laughs> They're going to come after you. They're going to try to, 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 to undo or to disqualify or to, you know, you have to be prepared for that. But the thing is that these disruptions, it is about breaking rules that should be broken.
0: That's you know? the thing. That's yeah, it should be broken. Thing.
1: Not disruption is not being a rebel for rebel's sake. It's being a rebel with a cause. You know, so generating or regenerating after you've disrupted something, so what are you gonna put in place now that it is disrupted? Do you have a proposal? Do you have an alternative? You must think about that first. And the theorizing then, I mean, that's where the academic angle then comes in. You Say like, well, what is theorizing, right? Theorizing, the product of theorizing is theories. And what are theories? Theories are tools that allow us to name, describe and explain phenomena. Right? So theorizing disruptions is how do you go about naming and describing and explaining that disrupting that you're doing, which is occupational. Mm. And then what are you going to put in place, generating or regenerating? How are you going to name, describe and explain those regenerations? You know. So all of this then comes together and actually allows it to shape education and writing and research know, and lobbying for policy changes, you know, all of this comes together. Then. So, so, so there is no, ch- I mean, we said earlier, you arrived at a conclusion, and we both agree, he says, oh, this country still has such a long way to go, you know, South Africa, if we were to ask the question, how is South Africa as a whole, as a country, close to 60 million people, how are we doing together, if you were to ask that question, you know, the response to that question very likely is that we 28 years after apartheid was abolished in 1994, our country continues to be stuck Mm. in what can be be regarded a vicious cycle of violence, multiple levels, division, multiple levels, and woundedness. And a vicious cycle means that the woundedness feeds the violence the violence feeds the division. We're stuck in there. We don't know how to get out of it and if you historicize that diagnosis you say like well where does this come from how did we get here then we're talking about the long view of history some 400 years right Mm. you know and what is the what is the dominant pattern i'm theorizing now what's the dominant pattern there that that can be seen there it is dehumanization dynamics Mm. where a particular group of people treated and the other groups of people (laughs) that together then make up this country as inferior until the present day. So, and if you say dehumanization is then one side of a continuum, the opposite would be humanization. So if we want to do something about that condition that I just described, humanizing and healing potentially could shape thinking about positioning and preparing occupational therapists to be part of doing that work. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world. Because that, that, I mean, if you talk about meaning and purpose, mm. to contribute to bringing that work or that process about, I can't think of anything uh, more worthwhile. Sean,
0: sure. purpose, meaning.
1: At a country level, at a people level. You know, mm. I'm not talking about an individual, my own individual purpose. and merit. Yes, of course, there is that dimension. But I think we've been, we've been trained in OT to think so individualistically that uh, we actually forget that, well, can that be applied to collectives as well? And, mm. and then the, the obvious answer is like, well, of course. Just because it's institutionally not yet uh, established, it doesn't mean that it couldn't or shouldn't go there.
0: Well, we're running out of time again. But before we do, <laughs> let me ask you a quick fire question so that we can wrap up. So the first uh, question I have for you, are you ready? Yeah, go ahead. You answer as quickly as you can. All right. So the first question I have for you, who is your favorite person in the world? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, uh, Prof. Prof. Ramogon.
0: <laughs> That's okay probably an obvious one eh? yeah, I, did I, on purpose. I did it on purpose I just wanted to hear you say it
1: <laughs>
0: uh, what is your hidden talent carpentry really yeah oh, woodwork yes. work you're actually right you're actually right I've seen some of your work all right um the next question that I have for you what is the last thing you learned that completely changed your life
1: you Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one too. that's a big one to to immediately respond to because, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: mm,
1: no, actually no. I mean like, like, I, I, I can't <laughs> I can't answer that because the question is so specific. Um, it's impossible for me to give a to give a, a one straight quick answer to that because they it's too leveled. It's too
0: it's it's too deep Nate. for you it yeah because <laughs> last said, thing
1: means like well okay no, no, that's not the last thing that was like the previous thing and that completely changed my life. I think there's not been to date there has been nothing that completely changed my life. my life is completely changing almost like on a daily basis okay. if that make if that makes sense. so so it's a yeah that's 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 too complex of a question to give a quick answer to. That's my answer.
0: Okay, that's fine. Um, Knowing what you know now, what would you say to your 18-year-old self or maybe let's say 19-year-old self when you've just completed your teaching diploma?
1: That if you have the opportunity to uh, leave temporarily, minimally, your familiar surroundings and expose yourself to... um, yeah, two worlds and two peoples uh, who are very different from you. Um, how you perceive yourself. Um, go for it. Do it.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, the second last question. What do you want to be remembered by? Being frank. Being frank. Yeah. <laughs> I got that. I got it. And the last yeah. question. Um, what is your occupational perspective? How, how do you view occupation?
1: How do I view occupation? I have m- m- many different uh, ways of approaching, answering that question, and that's intentional uh, because depending on who asked the question and what may be the intent of the person asking that question, I give different answers. For example, I could have asked answered this question early on when I made that, that link with growing up in a bakery milieu, mm-hmm. by baker families, you know. Um, if I look back and say like, well, what did bread mean for me? How do I appreciate, what, what is it What is it about bread that I appreciate beyond the fact that you eat it and it sustains you, right? It mm-hmm. nourishes you. Is that at some point I, I responded to the question of like, well, what is occupation to me? Is that, well, it's the other daily bread that we cannot do without.
0: Frank, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom. I think you've blown my mind away so many times in the interview. And I'm not shocked. I mean, the first conversation was just as enriching, but it was not even the same, and that's why no, it I find about it. Wasn't, it. It wasn't even it was. the same. So, thank you so so much for your time.
1: You're welcome, and I hope that this time the recording will have uh, stuck to your I system. I hope
0: so too. I, I really hope so too. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Occupational Perspectives. I hope our girl's journey has inspired you to work on becoming the occupational therapist of your dreams. From me, both the ordinary and extraordinary are a result of occupation. So keep doing what you do. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and engage with us on Instagram. Until next time, bye-bye.